have the wonderful privilege this morning of having Jonathan Holmes with us. He'll be preaching this morning from Matthew 18, and I am super excited about that. Jonathan is the founder and the executive director of Fieldstone Counseling, and he also serves as the pastor of counseling for Parkside Church in Ohio, a couple of the campuses there at Parkside Church. He graduated and has degrees from Master's College along with Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. He's the author of a couple of books, which we have been encouraging you to add to what I hope is your growing Christian library. Those two books, one, The Company We Keep in Search of Biblical Friendship, uh, would encourage you to grab a copy of this book. You know that I like these kind of books right here, and uh, it's easy to digest, and uh, would encourage you to get a copy of that. And uh, also, uh, his book, Counsel for Couples, is wonderful, practical, just a wealth of uh, biblical, godly insight, uh, wisdom, and instruction here in this book. And so would encourage you to grab a copy uh, of those. At some point, I think you'll be edified if you do. Jonathan also has a book that is forthcoming entitled Rescue Plan. That'll be out in 2020, and we're uh, excited to, to read that when it comes out. Uh, Jonathan is married to Jennifer. They have four daughters, Ava, Riley, Ruby, and Emma. And uh, he has sacrificed a lot to be away from those uh, four, four ladies for the last 24 hours uh, or so, 40, 48 hours. And so, Jonathan, thank you. Thank you for sacrificing and uh, coming to be with us. And, uh, brother, it's my privilege to give you the pulpit and uh, to have you open God's word uh, with us this morning. We appreciate you, brother. Well, thank you so much to Pastor Eric and uh, to the rest of the leadership team here for hosting me at Cape Bible Chapel. Uh, I've never been to Cape Girardeau before, and so it really is a privilege to, uh, to be here with you, not only today, but also this weekend. And uh, I spoke with my wife last night on the phone and was just recapping just a couple of the conversations I had with many of you and just how encouraging it was to be with you. And that's one of the wonderful things, right, about Christian fellowship is we really can go anywhere and for those of us who are in Christ, there is this immediate connection where, where we know each other and we get each other. And so thank you so much for having me and for hosting me, and I hope that today can be an encouragement to you. If you have a Bible this morning, let me invite you to turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew chapter 18 for our scripture reading today. Matthew chapter 18, and we'll be reading verses 21 through 35. I'm reading from the ESV version. Matthew chapter 18, verse 21 reads, Then Peter came up to him and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy times seven. Verse 23, Therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. Since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had in a payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, and seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay back what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused, and he went, and he put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and they reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. A brief prayer. Father, we come to you this morning and we pray that we would come to the text this morning with humility, with open ears, and with an open mind. Father, I pray and I ask that your spirit would do what I can't, and that is to open blind hearts and blind eyes. Father, I pray this morning that I would recede into the background, and Father, that Christ would be made much of today. And we ask this in your Son's name. Amen. 
Our topic at hand this morning from our text is a topic that I believe is really at the heart of the gospel message and really at the heart then of what it means to be a Christian. Our aim this morning is to talk about this issue of forgiveness and really talking about forgiveness at a broad level and I've been tasked to talk about forgiveness and marriage but what I'm a bit hesitant to, uh, to, to say is to say it's only about forgiveness and marriage because I recognize that in a group this size there are many of you, children and high schoolers and college students and, and people who do not find themselves to be married, and so I don't want you to tune this out. Because what we are talking about as it relates to forgiveness is not only good for marriage, it's really good for any relationship that we find ourselves involved in. But particularly, our gaze will be drawn to the relationship of marriage. Paul Tripp writes about forgiveness in marriage saying this, he says, I cannot think of a more essential ingredient in marriage than forgiveness. If it could be bottled, a daily dose would probably save a lot of marriages. And I can tell you that in over a decade of marriage counseling, that there is one common feature that comes up in every single marriage counseling case that I find, and that is either a lack of or a complete misunderstanding of the issue of forgiveness. Uh, culture will tell you that there are a lot of great ways that you can do marriage. Culture will tell you that there are a lot of super ways that you can have a terrific marriage. Now, recently, I was uh, on the internet and I came across an article in the New York Times and they interviewed over 50 different couples and they said, tell us the secret of your marriage. And they interviewed couples that had been married two weeks and they interviewed couples that had been married 60 years. And they recorded their answers and I just thought I'd read for you a few of the answers that these couples gave that said, this is the one thing, this is the key that we have had to having a good marriage. One couple writes this, it's the little things. He makes me a smoothie every single morning to keep me healthy. When the kids were little, he'd get them up and get them to school if he knew I was exhausted. And I, in turn, I shovel snow for him if he's too busy at work or I like to pick up his favorite cookies. Another couple says this. We encourage one another to pursue passions, both individually and together. He's such a cool person, and so am I. We like to be in on each other's lives. The energy generated from pursuing our own passions, crafts, our together life in the process. Another couple writes this about the key to marriage. They say, being married is all about having a witness to what you want to do with your life. It's about having a person who signed up to be there for it all. A happy marriage is about that witness caring about every single thing that you do, the weird things that you're into, all the decisions that you have to make in a given day, laughing at your jokes because they were listening. I think that's love, and that's a pretty great way to stay happily married. Another couple writes this. They say, we work every day to make the other person's life as comfortable and as pleasant as possible. Both of us have different strengths and weaknesses, and we share what we can to lessen the burdens of life for the other. Ours is a marriage of multiple tiny gestures to make the other person happy. This final couple says this. They say, what makes a happy marriage? He says, being willing to pick up the slack when the other person can't. We both work a lot, and I'm currently pregnant, so sometimes my husband walks the dog for me, and sometimes I do the grocery shopping to make sure that we have healthy fuel around the house. And also, more practically, we've learned to keep some matches in the bathroom, right? That's what makes for happy marriages, and, and we listen to that, and we hear all of those different things, and while all of those sound like some fun and some easy ways to have a great marriage, from shoveling snow to getting your loved one cookies and making smoothies for them, I'll tell you, friends, this, that none of them come close to what the Bible says actually makes relationships work. What makes relationships work is having the gospel at the center of every single relationship, especially the relationship of marriage. And this morning, I want us to turn our gaze to a text to help us build a foundation of what this gospel-centered forgiveness looks like, and we'll look to the end to make some application both to our own lives and to our own relationships. This morning, we'll work our way through the text along a few headings that I think are recounted for you at the back of your bulletin. We'll see a Q&A ensue between Peter and Christ in verses 21 through 22. Uh, we'll see a king, a debt, a payment, an unthinkable act, a rebuke, all capped off by a warning. So let's dive into the text with our first heading, a Q&A, verses 21 through 22. 
Uh, Peter, I, I love Peter, right? He is just this, this person who is always willing to step up to the plate, ask the questions nobody else wants to, and there's this degree of impulsivity about him that uh, I'm sure many of us can identify with. Uh, Peter poses a question to Jesus, and he says, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me, and I forgive him up to seven times? And we begin to get this sense here, right, that Peter's probably patting himself on the back a little bit here, because uh, back in the day, the rabbinic tradition said that you'd never want to forgive more than, more than God did, and they uh, had gone back to different Old Testament texts where it talked about God forgiving people only three times. And so to forgive somebody more than three times was to say that you were better than God. And so you can imagine that Peter here is thinking that he's, you know, he's actually a good guy. And he's saying, you know what, what if I double the number and I add one? What if I, what if I forgive someone seven times? Is that enough? What Jesus oftentimes does, though, he confounds the conventional wisdom and he answers Peter and he says, actually, that's not the case at all, Peter. He says, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. And that number is 490, and what Jesus is not saying that at number 491, now you get a free pass for anything that happens, but he's saying, listen, you, you can't put a number on how many times you are to forgive another person. That leads us then into the actual teaching of the parable, where in verse 23, we're introduced to a king or to this master figure. We're told that the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. And we would do well this morning to remember that Jesus is speaking to his disciples in the language of a parable. Well, what is a parable? Ancient Near Eastern commentator Kenneth Bailey writes, he says, the parables of Jesus are concrete and dramatic forms of theological language that press the listener to respond. They reveal the nature of the kingdom of God and they indicate how a child of that kingdom should act. One of the difficulties oftentimes with parables is when we see people's reactions to the parables, we realize that more often than not, Jesus' audience rarely got the parables. They actually confounded the people rather than astounded them or gave them information. And that's actually a part of the reason and a part of the purpose of what parables were to do. D.A. Carson writes this. He says, at least one of the functions of parables is actually to conceal truth or at least to present it in some veiled way. For those without ears to hear, parables seem to conceal more than they reveal, so that superficial hearing and seeing do not lead to true spiritual understanding or perception apart from the Holy Spirit. All that to say here in the parable, we are introduced then to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants or with his slaves. And like most parables which feature this master or kingly figure, the king in this parable is meant to portray God the Father. That brings us to our third heading where we see this story come into the foreground. We see a debt in verses 24 through 26. In verse 24, we are told that there is one slave, or one servant rather, who owed the king 10,000 talents. Now, I want your eye to gaze up to verse 24, and I want you to notice that in this parable, the servant has to be brought to the king. He doesn't willingly come. He's actually compelled to come. The king actually has to send out his people and bring this servant to him. We're told that this servant owes the king 10,000 talents. A talent at that time was the largest sum of money in the Roman world. It might have been that culture's $100 bill, as it were. And the 10,000 number is the largest number that the Greek language could express. Right? It, you, can, you can begin to see that Jesus is trying to communicate a sum of money that would have been astronomically high. He chooses the highest denomination of their currency, and he chooses the highest number that the Greek language can express, and he puts them together, and he says, this is how much this person owes. It might be like us saying that this guy owes the king a gazillion dollars or a gazillion billion trillion dollars. It's, it's an unimaginable amount of money that one human being never would have been able to pay. Because payment then on that $10,000 debt could not be made, the slave then is to be sold into slavery. And as Jesus' audience was listening to this parable, that would not have been unfamiliar to his first century audience. Consistently throughout the Old Testament, if debts could not be paid, part of the repayment process was that that person and all of his family were to be put into slavery or to be put back into servitude so that they could work off that debt. Well, we're actually quite astounded then in light of this that in verse 26, the slave responds to the king and responds to the plight of imprisonment with a crazy request. He tells the king, he says, quote, I will pay you everything. 
I will pay you everything. Now, it's fascinating to see that the slave does not ask to have the debt forgiven. The slave doesn't ask to have the, uh, doesn't ask to have the debt canceled or remitted. He simply says, I will pay you back everything, right? It's, it's completely irrational. It's completely crazy. The slave would never have been able to pay back that debt. You begin to see, right, in, in, in the telling of the parable that the slave in so many ways oftentimes represents you and I in our sinful state that deluded and deceived, that we actually oftentimes believe that there's a way that we can pay back our debt back to God. The slave doesn't realize and doesn't get that the 10,000 talent debt, which represents a gazillion trillion dollars, is a debt that he never would have been able to pay. But yet in the insanity of his sin and in the blindness of his state, he pleads with the king, let me work it off. Let me pay back everything. That brings us then to our fourth heading where we see a payment is made in verse 27. We're told that out of pity for him, the master of that servant releases him and forgives him of the debt. In verse 27, we read something that I'm sure that the servant himself would have felt also that this is too good to be true. Remember, the unbelieving slave had only asked for one thing, right? The unbelieving slave had only asked for time to repay back the debt. And the king comes back to him with something that would have been completely astonishing, not only for the slave, but also for the surrounding audience. In verse 27, we see three critical movements on the king's part, which help inform and build out our theology and our understanding of forgiveness. And you can actually underline all three of them. We're told that out of pity for him, the master releases him and forgives him. And friends, all three of those constituent elements of having pity, releasing, and forgiving him makes up and shapes out our biblical understanding of forgiveness. That first phrase there of out of pity, it literally means to feel compassion from the deepest part of who you are. It doesn't just mean that you, you kind of feel bad for another person because they dropped their milkshake on the floor, right? That's, that's not what the king is saying here. It's actually saying that out of the very deepest core, out of your guts, out of your kidneys and your livers and your intestines, out of the very deepest part of who you are, the king sees the state and he sees the plight of the servant and it does something to him. He actually is moved with compassion. That second phrase there where we're told that the master of the servant releases him. That word releases him means to set a person free, to let a person go to equip them. It's the exact same Greek word that's used in Matthew 27, 15 to describe a prisoner that is released during Passover. So the master is moved with compassion. He releases or frees the person from his debt, but the good news keeps getting better. We're told that he actually forgives the debt of the servant. That word to forgive the debt means to remit the penalty, to pardon the debt, to let go, to let go from obligation towards oneself and to completely cancel it, right? We all know that, that, that that's different than just being released from it, right? It's, it's, one thing for, uh, it's one thing for the master to say, listen, you don't need to go to prison, you're free to go, but that debt is still going to stay on your record, right? Imagine the IRS accidentally charges you and says, listen, you owe $50,000 in, in back taxes. And they say, listen, you don't need to pay it, but it's still going to be on your record. Your tax returns are still going to show that you owe $50,000. But because you can't pay it, we're not going to issue you a penalty. Right? Jesus and the master figure here in this parable goes one step forward. Not only does he release the person of this 10,000 talent debt, he also cancels it. He says, I'm letting it go. I'm pardoning it. It is as if it never happened. All of these verbs here in verse 27 are in the aorist tense, meaning that this is action that has already taken place in the past. Paul writes of this dynamic from another angle. If we want to get a little bit of a riff on verse 27, we might think back to what Paul says in Colossians chapter 2, verse 13. Paul says, you who were dead in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together in him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by what? By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Right? Paul is saying, listen, not only does God forgive us of our debts, but he actually cancels that record of debts by nailing it to the cross. 
And friends, it's in light of such amazing and loving and compassionate forgiveness that makes our fifth heading all the more unthinkable. In verses 28 through 31, you see an unthinkable act. An unthinkable act. We're told that the slave, or the servant rather, immediately goes out after he's just been forgiven the gazillion trillion dollar debt, and he finds another fellow servant, and he demands to be paid back. It's, it's completely unbelievable. Now, the slave's debt to this first slave is about 100 denarii, and a denarii was worth about a day's wages. So you can imagine that it's about three months' wages. It's about three months' worth of money that's owed. Not, not, not a big sum, but it's not a trifling sum either. It definitely would have been a sum of money that you could pay back. Think about what you make in a given year, and think about three months of that, and, and that being the debt. It, it would definitely be a hardship to you, but you would probably be able to do it. Compared to the debt, though, that the first slave owed to the king, this debt is, it's like pennies on the dollar. However, in a bit of deja vu, this slave responds similarly to the demand for repayment. He says, listen, have patience with me, and I will pay you. But unfortunately, the first servant is no true son of the master. He seizes the second servant, and we're told that he begins to choke him and hauls the person off to prison. And the behaviors, right, are meant to arrest the audience, right? There's, there's, there's a certain part of parables that are supposed to be provocative to the audience, right? And you're hoping that as Jesus is telling this parable, that, that part of the audience that is listening to it would say, that's, that's crazy, that's unthinkable. This guy just got forgiven such a crazy debt, and now he's going to go back to this guy who owes him three months' wages, and he's going to choke him and send him back to prison? that better? Oh, there we go. All right. No problem at all. Right? The servant goes back, throws the guy in prison. The audience is probably thinking to itself, what in the world? That's crazy. It's absolutely unthinkable, and rightly so. After his fellow slaves, fellow slaves see what happened, uh, because they understand they, and they realize that in light of what that person had just had happen to him, that that's an unthinkable act. Pastor and commentator John MacArthur writes this. He says, this kind of behavior seems unthinkable and it even seems bizarre. It's hard to believe someone could act in such a way and that is exactly the Lord's point to Peter and the other disciples. For a Christian to be unwilling to forgive one another is unthinkable and bizarre. For a Christian to be unwilling to forgive another person is unthinkable and bizarre. This leads us to our sixth heading, a, a rebuke in verses 32 through 34. The text says, Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger his master delivered him to the jail, jailers until he should pay all of his debt. You see, word gets back to the king. The slave is recalled in verse 32, and the king calls the slave wicked and rebukes him for being so completely unmerciful to the other slave now now friends i want to draw your gaze to verse 33 i want you to note in verse 33 that the king's expectation of mercy and forgiveness is grounded in his own example of forgiveness and mercy notice that the parable doesn't say something like this in verse 33 it doesn't say should not have you had mercy on your fellow servant? Kind of like I had mercy on you. 
or sort of like I forgave you. No, that's not what the text says at all. That's not what the parable says at all. It says, should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And friends, this is absolutely critical for all of us to understand this morning. Whether you're a teen, whether you're a child, a college student, a, a prime timer, someone, someone married, it is absolutely critical to understand that our motivation to forgive is grounded and motivated in God's forgiveness of us. The parable doesn't say that our forgiveness is supposed to kind of be like whatever we want it to be. Our forgiveness of others is meant to embody the forgiveness that we receive from God himself. We are given then a very stark reminder of what's at stake when the king, in righteous anger, throws the slave back into prison until he could pay off his debt, which leads us then to our seventh and our final heading where we see a warning. Jesus closes off the parable with a brief word of explanation. He says, so also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Jesus closes the parable with a stern warning to his audience. The stakes are set incredibly high. And friends, I hope you see that this morning. Right? This, this isn't a matter, Jesus is saying, of preference. This isn't a matter of, well, you know, some people do it like this and other people do it like this and some people are really forgiving and other people aren't so much and it's not really all that big of a deal at all. Jesus is saying, listen, your very forgiveness before God the Father is dependent and demonstrative of your own forgiveness that you have received from God the Father. The stakes are incredibly high. It is clear from Jesus' teaching that forgiveness is no trifling matter. D.A. Carson, again, is helpful. He says, Jesus sees no incongruity in the actions of a heavenly Father who forgives so bountifully and who punishes so ruthlessly, and neither should we. Indeed, it is precisely because he is a God of such compassion and mercy that he cannot possibly accept as his those who are devoid of compassion and mercy. Let me read that again. It is precisely because God is a God of compassion and mercy that he cannot possibly accept as his those who are devoid of compassion and mercy. Like other parables, Jesus' closing interpretation is meant to be a simple summary, not an exhaustive accounting of every single detail. The message for the audience that Jesus wants them to take away is clear, and the message for us, friends, this morning is also clear. If you do not forgive, you will not be forgiven by God the Father. Some of you this morning are probably thinking to yourself, well, hold up, wait a minute. That kind of sounds like you're saying that our salvation is dependent on us then. That our salvation is dependent on a good work that we might do. So that if I don't forgive, God's not going to forgive me. That's not what Jesus is saying or conveying at all. Rather, what Jesus is getting at at the end of the parable is that he is demonstrating that a person who does not forgive demonstrates and witnesses and testifies to the reality that he or she has never, ever truly experienced the forgiveness that comes from God. Friends, forgiveness is at the very heart of what it means to be a Christian. Forgiveness is at the very heart of every single gospel-centered relationship that we engage in. Forgiveness should be at the heart of every marriage. Jay Adams famously said that you were never more like God than when you forgive. You were never more like God than when you forgive. As we move, friends, then towards application, uh, Jesus is teaching here about forgiveness through this parable of the unforgiving service helps us this morning in a number of ways, but not the least of which is to correct a number of popular myths that surround forgiveness. And in our brief time that we have left, I want to give you six of the most common myths about forgiveness that this teaching and that this parable so helpfully dispels. The first myth is this is that forgiveness is optional. That forgiveness is optional. Is, is forgiveness really that important? Uh, recently I had a wife in that had been in marriage counseling with me and her and her husband had had decades of conflict, decades of manipulation and oppression where he had just worn her down and as her kids now had exited the home, she was looking at an empty nest but realizing that she couldn't divorce him because all of her well-being was tied up in him. 
And she excitedly told me about this resolution that she had come to. She said, you know what? She goes, listen, I'm never going to change, Bob, but I've just decided that I'm just going to let things slide off my back. I'm going to let things slide off my back, and I'm just going to go forward and be happy. While I understood the impetus of what she was saying, and I understood the difficulty that she had been through, it wasn't a biblical model for how she should deal with her husband's behavior. Right When all of us come across trouble and hardship and when people sin against us or when we sin against others, we typically have certain responses to that. Some of us like to fight back in relationships. And when somebody sins against us or when we sin against someone else, we like to fight it out. Others of us like to fake it out. We like to pretend that everything's okay and that there's nothing going on and that you're married to somebody who has never done anything wrong and you're just going to turn a blind eye to everything. Others of us like to flee. Others of us like to leave and, and try to get out of those particularly difficult situations. So some of you might fight, some of you might fake it, some of you might flee it. God tells us to forgive. God tells us to forgive, and forgiveness, friends, is not an option. If our marriages and if our relationships, friends, this morning are to embody a story of redemption, then forgiveness, sought and granted, has to be the central storyline of our marriages if our marriages are supposed to embody a story of redemption, then friends, you had better believe forgiveness is the number one plot line that has to be present. Would I know that if I came into your house? Would I know that forgiveness, both sought and granted, makes up the very ethos of your home? Do your children ever hear you seek forgiveness from them? Do your children ever see you transacting and demonstrating forgiveness to one another? Friends, do you ever seek forgiveness from those that you have sinned against in relationships? Have you ever sought or granted forgiveness to someone when they have wronged you? Or do you try to believe that it never happened? Or do you leave those relationships and say, well, it's just not worth it? Friends, forgiveness is not optional. It's something that God has given to all of us, and it's a task that we must take up. The second myth is this, is that apologizing is the same thing as forgiveness. Apologizing is the same thing as forgiveness. In my experience, this is probably one of the most common myths associated with forgiveness. And the language of I'm sorry becomes the lingua franca of most relationships. But friends, can I tell you this? The problem with apologizing is that it's not biblical. You are never going to see in Scripture that when sin happens in a relationship that you go up to them and say, oh, I'm sorry. Right? I'm sorry is great for accidents. If I bump up into you and I've got a cup of coffee and I accidentally spill a little bit of coffee on you, and say, oh, I'm sorry, you know, you know, let me get you a paper towel. But when, but when I lose my temper with you and I sin against you and I use words that are rash and unkind and impatient and caustic, I don't go up to you and say, hey, I'm sorry. I should be coming to you and I should be saying, please forgive me. And in fact, the actual word apology comes to us from the Greek word apologia, which is where we get the word apologetics from. And apologetics is actually to do what? To make a defense of oneself. And so oftentimes I find that sorry is actually just a code to actually defend yourself. I'm sorry that you felt this way, or I'm sorry if what I said hurt your feelings, but, you know, you, you, you kind of been, you know, in a little bit of a mood lately, and so it's just kind of hard to be around you. Friends, that's not biblical forgiveness. That's you making a defense of yourselves and clothing it in the language of apology. The Bible has nowhere to speak of the language of apology as a means to live out the story of the gospel. Again, let me remind you of what Paul wrote in Colossians 3.13. He says, bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. It doesn't say, Paul doesn't write, apologize as the Lord apologized to you. Right? I mean, it doesn't even make sense. Right? When we even say it, we realize that, 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 that wording, right? that, 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 that wording doesn't even make sense. The language that scripture gives to us to structure our relationships is a language of forgiveness, not apology. I tell my kids all the time, as much as is possible, I don't ever want to hear you say, I'm sorry, when we sin against each other. I want you to go to your sister, I want you to go to your mom, and I want to come to you, and I want to look you in the eye, and I want you to say, please forgive me, please forgive me. Friends, if sorry, or the language of apology, is a part of the lingua franca of your relationship this morning, could you make a resolution in your heart by God's grace to eliminate that from your vocabulary? 
Could you as a family, could you as husbands begin to lead the way in relationships by, by modeling and embodying this type of forgiveness where, where you take the lead in shepherding and guiding and setting the pace and the culture and the ethos of your home by going to people that you have wronged and going to people that you sinned against and that you look people in the eye and you say, please forgive me. Please forgive me. Apologizing is not the same thing as asking for forgiveness. The third myth that this text dispels for us is that forgiving means forgetting. Forgiving means forgiving. Forgiveness is frequently equated with forgetting, and I've had scores of husbands and wives and other individuals tell me that they cannot forgive because they cannot forget the wrongs done to them by their spouse or by someone else. In the economy of the, a relationship, forgiveness then can be withheld until the offense is forgotten. Forgiveness can be withheld until the offense is forgotten. The problem with this myth, friends, in, like many of the other myths, is that it's not biblical. Nowhere in Scripture does it say that in order to forgive, you have to forget the offense done to you. And so, friends, if our forgiveness, again, is meant to embody and exemplify God's forgiveness of us in Christ, we see that Christ never forgets our sins in order to forgive them. Quite the opposite, in fact. We are told that Jesus chooses not to remember our sins. And friends, choosing not to remember our offenses and choosing not to remember our sins, friends, is a whole completely different thing than just forgetting something that's happened. This active disposition of forgiveness has to be clarified and put into practice. The Bible is vivid in its description of what God in Christ does with our sins, and you will never find a passage of Scripture that says God forgets about your sins. Instead, what we're told is that, that God places our sins into the depths of the sea, Micah 7, 19. We're told in Psalm 103, 12, that God takes our sins and he places them as far as the east is from the west. We're told that God takes our sins and that he puts them behind his back, Isaiah 38, 17. We're told that our sins and our lawless acts, he will choose to remember no more, Hebrews 13, 17. We're told in Jeremiah 31, 34, I will forgive their wickedness and I will remember their sins no more. Isaiah 43, 25, God says, I, even I, am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake and who remembers your sins no more. Friends, this morning, if any of you are buying into the myth that you can't forgive your spouse or you can't forgive your annoying mother-in-law or if you can't forgive your, 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 your oppressive father-in-law or your sister or your aunt or whoever it might be or some generational sin that has plagued your family because you can't forget the wrong that has been done, then, friends, you are buying into a lie that is not grounded in Scripture. Scripture does not call us to forget the offenses done to us. Scripture calls us to forgive the offenses done to us. And if we tie forgetting them to our forgiveness in many ways, short of amnesia, that most likely will not happen. Forgiveness is not the same thing as forgetting. Fourth myth, forgiveness is the same thing as reconciliation. Forgiveness is the same thing as reconciliation. I hear this all the time. Well, listen, I can't forgive him because I don't what? I don't trust him. Right? I can't forgive him because I don't trust him. I can't forgive her because I don't trust her. And so what we do is we take the event and we conflate it with the process. Forgiveness is not the same thing as reconciliation. Forgiveness is the event which prepares and paves the way for reconciliation. One commentator writes this, forgiveness means a willingness to seek to reestablish trust, but that reestablishment of trust is always a process. Right? Proverbs 18, 19 a brother wronged is more unyielding than a fortified city. Disputes are like the barred gates of a citadel. Right? It's a wonderful way to put down a timeless truth. A brother wronged is like an unyielding city, right? A, a, a person that you've just sinned against and wronged is not going to say like, hey, come on back into my city. Let me, let me roll out the red carpet for you. Let me lay down the gates of the city and just come on back in. Let's just go back to life as it was. No, the Proverbs say, no, an offended brother is difficult to win back. There's a process that has to take place when sin breaks relationship. But friends, the process gets initiated and gets started when we extend and grant forgiveness as individuals. Forgiveness is not the same thing as reconciliation. If some of you this morning are withholding forgiveness from a loved one because you were saying, quote unquote, I don't trust them, 
or I can't believe that they won't do this again, friends, then you are not following the biblical model of forgiveness. Number five, the fifth myth, forgiveness erases consequences. Forgiveness erases consequences. Spouses oftentimes will tell me that they will withhold forgiveness because they fear that it will enable their spouse to carry on without consequences. They'll say, well, listen, I'm not going to forgive him because then he thinks he's going to be able to walk all over me and I'll be a doormat. I'm not going to forgive him. The argument is if I forgive him, there's no consequences. There are no repercussions for their behavior. But friends, again, scripture is clear that there are consequences for our actions. But guess who's in charge of those consequences? Newsflash, it's not you. You're not a more righteous judge than God himself. And when you seek to exercise and issue your own consequences for other individual sins, you are actually elevating yourself higher than God himself, who's a righteous judge. You're actually saying, you know what, God, can you actually just go over here in the corner? Actually, I've got a better plan here for my husband. I've actually got some things that he needs to kind of do. That's what you're doing when you withhold forgiveness so that they can, quote, unquote, have consequences. Paul tells us about who we need to entrust this work to. He says in Galatians 6, 7, don't be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man will reap what he sows. Friends, forgiveness of sin in a marital relationship does not remove consequences, but can actually and in reality give a couple a better foundation to weather and deal with those consequences of sin. Right? When there's sin that happens within the confines and within the context of not only a marriage relationship, but also any other relationship that any of you are engaged in, engaging in forgiveness actually, I find, gives you the ability and the strength and the wherewithal to actually conduct your relationship in such a way that, the, that, that weathering the storm of whatever particular consequences come your way is actually a much easier thing to do. Our sixth myth is this. Forgiveness is a feeling. Forgiveness is a feeling, or that forgiveness should be easy. One of the more common things that I'll hear in counseling is, why is this so hard? Why is this so hard? One of the, one of the reasons people don't forgive is because forgiveness is more associated with feelings and not obedience. When forgiveness is grounded more in your personal feelings than obedience than God's word, then forgiveness will most likely be difficult. Because, friends, I've rarely met anybody who finds it easy or where it gives them warm, fuzzy feelings to forgive somebody that's just sinned against them. Right? I don't know about you, but to move towards someone who has just wronged me, that typically doesn't feel good. But, friends, if forgiveness is a feeling and not obedience to God's word, then guess again who's in the driver's seat. Guess again who gets to, to lay out the groundwork and the framework for what forgiveness is and isn't. It's not a holy God. It's, it's you and I. It puts you and I in the driver's seat. Forgiveness will always entail some type of hurt. That's why oftentimes Tim Keller says forgiveness is a form of voluntary suffering. Right? When you move towards someone and you forgive them, you in a very voluntary way say, listen, I will absorb the cost of the sin that you inflicted upon me. I will, I will suffer through that. Forgiveness, then, must be granted before it is felt. Forgiveness must be granted before it is felt. If you were waiting for a feeling, quote-unquote, before you move towards someone to forgive, friends, can I tell you this? It will more likely than not take quite a long time for those feelings to change. So, brothers and sisters, this morning here at Cape Bible Chapel, as we close our time together, where does that leave us? Where does that leave us? Not only this teaching from this parable about forgiveness and seeking in some ways to, to reestablish and reorient our gaze to what Scripture actually has to say about forgiveness. What do we do with that? Well, here's the first point and really the only application point that I have for us this morning, and it's this. It's that God's forgiveness, then, is both our motive and our model in relationships. God's forgiveness is both our motive and our model in relationships, in marriage, in friendships, in extended family relationships. Another way that you might say it is that God's forgiveness is our example, and it's the engine. It's the example and the engine. He not only shows us, but he gives us that power to be able to do it. Commentator Klein Snodgrass says that the indicative of God's forgiveness, the truth, the example of God's forgiveness, precedes the imperative of our response. The indicative of God's forgiveness precedes the imperative of our response. Friends, can I tell you this morning, 
in my experience, I have found that people who forgive little tend to be people who believe they've been forgiven little. People who forgive a lot and forgive in the uttermost tend to be people who realize and are impacted by the forgiveness that they've received from God. Can I ask you a very honest question this morning? Do you, do you get a little stingy with your forgiveness towards other people? Does pridefulness keep you back from seeking forgiveness? Do you actually think that you, you actually don't need to seek forgiveness from too many people? Do you come in here this morning if I said, do you need to seek forgiveness from anyone that nobody comes across your mind? Friends, oftentimes I find that's because the people who believe and don't forgive very much are people who don't believe that they've been forgiven very much. They actually think that they're doing God a favor by coming into his family. I mean, I'm not that bad. I've never done all of these other things that other people have done. I mean, listen, I'm actually, pretty, I'm actually a pretty good guy. I'm a, I'm a pretty good person here. I've actually, I mean, God had to forgive me, but I mean, nothing compared to like the person sitting next to me or the other person here. I'm actually not that bad. And friends, what that type of belief does is that people who believe they've been forgiven little tend to be people who don't forgive very much. But people who realize that the wages of our sin is death and that the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. When you really get that, when you really get that even your good deeds are like filthy rags compared to Christ's righteousness, you know what that does? It gives you an admirable humility and mercy and compassion that says, I cannot believe I've been forgiven the, the gazillion trillion dollar debt. And so what that does is it moves me out. It not only moves me out, it compels me out, it pushes me out to move towards every person I can to embody the story of biblical forgiveness. Instead of please forgive me becoming the three hardest words to say, it actually becomes a part of everyday conversation. Can we talk about forgiveness? Can we talk about the gospel? Can we talk about this good news? It is imperative, friends, then, that this morning we understand our state and our position before God because, friends, apart from the saving grace of Jesus Christ, we stood condemned for our sin. In Romans chapter 5, Paul describes us in not too flattering terms. He says, listen, you're a sinner, you're weak, you're ungodly, and you're an enemy. Right? None of that sounds especially appealing. Right? None of that sounds like, hey, you're going to be able to squeak into the kingdom of God. But in Romans 5 it says, but God showed us his love in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Friends, it is only through the atoning work of Jesus Christ on the cross that you and I can have forgiveness of sins. And if that reality doesn't motivate and compel you and serve as an example for you to then to move towards people in your life towards forgiveness, friend, I, I am nervous and fearful of what that might say about your life as it relates to what we've learned this morning in this parable. The forgiveness that you and I receive as a free gift is both our model in that we extend forgiveness to others and it is our motive in that we forgive because we are forgiven. Tim Keller writes, he says, both the power and the model for forgiveness is, of course, the gospel. Christ died for us while we were his enemies. That action is not only the paradigm for us, but the thought of it becomes our power to follow through. It's our paradigm and it's our power. It's our motive and our model. It is our example and it is our engine. Husbands and wives, every time you practice forgiveness in your marriage, do you know what you're doing? Do you know that you are literally reenacting the gospel story? Did you know that you're actually two people who are embodying and giving, giving testimony to the forgiving love of God in Christ Jesus? From the smallest and the most seemingly inconsequential scenarios and irritations and hardships and difficulties of life, every time a husband tells a wife, please forgive me, and every time a wife tells her husband, I forgive you, we get a glimpse of the gospel. We get a glimpse of what Paul is talking about, of this is a great mystery. It's not about you, it's about Christ and his church. Forgiveness, friends, is not about us, but it's about making much of the forgiveness that we have received from Christ. Friends, this morning, what in your life needs to change in light of this teaching? Is there someone that you need to seek forgiveness from? I actually find that in the life of the church, Sunday mornings are probably the time when we sin against each other the most. You're cramming your kids into the van to get to church. You're screaming at them, yelling at them. We need to get there. We need to be on time. We don't want to be late like last time. 
you're frustrated with your husband because he didn't, he didn't make coffee. You're frustrated with your wife. Where's your shirt that you were looking for? And so you snap at her. You get irritated with her. You don't like how something appears here at the church, and so you want to gripe and complain to somebody else and gossip about a church leader, an elder, a deacon who didn't do something that you want. And then you come in here, and you're ready to go for worship. Right? That doesn't make sense. We're already probably a people this morning that we can already move towards someone in forgiveness to move towards our wife, to move towards our kids. Parents, do you need, after this service, to come back to your kids and say, please forgive me? Kids, do you need to go to your parents this morning and say, please forgive me? Husbands, wives, family members, friends, is there someone that we need to seek forgiveness from? Is there a way that we could have a hundred different retellings or embodiments of the gospel this afternoon. I pray that it is so. I'll close our time this morning with the good Bishop J.C. Ryle's comment on forgiveness. He says this. He says, let us determine by God's grace to forgive even as we hope to be forgiven. This is the nearest approach we can make to the mind of Christ Jesus. This is the character which is most suitable to a poor, sinful child of Adam. God's free forgiveness of sins is our highest privilege in this world. God's free forgiveness will be our only title in the eternal life in the world to come. Friends, let us be forgiving during the few years that we are here upon earth. Let us pray. Holy Father, we come to you this morning and we, we really stand amazed at the forgiveness that you give to us because of Christ and through Christ and in Christ. Father, each and every one of us here this morning, we've been forgiven the gazillion trillion dollar debt. And, and Father, we confess that more often than not, there are times that we don't live like that. We can live a sense of pridefulness and entitlement, the opposite of mercy and compassion and forgiveness. Father, I pray that you would help me to be a more merciful and forgiving person, that I would both seek it and grant it. Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters here at Cape Bible Chapel that we would be a people, that we would be husbands and fathers and children and teens and college students and grandparents and aunts and uncles who, who are forgiving people. That when people in this community here in Cape Girardeau, Missouri think about people at Cape Bible Chapel, that one of the words that seems best to describe the ethos of this church is that the people there, that the people there are forgiving people. They are gracious, merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. Father, I pray that the realities and the beauty of your forgiveness would then impact how we live and treat each other. Father, we ask for that strength and that grace, and we ask it in Christ's name. Now, a brief benediction. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. May you go in peace. Amen.